Welcome to Our Shoreline, Your Horizon, a podcast by Dan Casey, featuring business and economic development news from St. Clair County, Michigan. Stretch your horizons in the beautiful shoreline communities of St. Clair County, home to one of the nation's busiest international border crossings. Learn more at edascc.com. Hello, I'm Dan Casey with the Economic Development Alliance of St. Clair County, Michigan. And thank you for tuning in to the EDA's Our Shoreline, Your Horizon podcast. I'd first like to welcome today's guest, Mike Musselman, Director of Regional Portfolio Management for the Chicago, Illinois region of Fifth Third Bank. Mike has traveled to St. Clair County, Michigan to be our guest speaker at the EDA's semi-annual luncheon and to provide us with the 2023 economic forecast. Mike often speaks on behalf of the bank in Chicago as well as nationally on various economic and financial market topics, and I can't think of a better time to have this conversation right now, given everything that's happening at the national level. So with that, Mike, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Dan. Happy to be here. So tell our listeners a little about yourself and your career. Sure. So personally, as you mentioned, from Chicago, grew up in the Chicago suburbs, still in the suburbs of Chicago. Um, Whereabouts? Um, so the southwest suburbs, Lamont. Okay. Uh, just recently moved uh, moved to Lamont, but I did grow up there as well. So kind of made my way back, as many as many do. Uh, not really what I had planned, but here I am. Um, so I'm married, and my wife and I have two small children, six and four. Um, from a career standpoint, um, as you mentioned, I'm with Fifth Third Bank, the private bank. I started my career uh, as a research analyst, studying markets and leading a research team. And pretty early on, started working directly with clients as a portfolio manager, kind of concurrently. And I kind of moved through that role and all along kind of enjoyed working with clients, sharing, you know, firms' view of the markets and how that impacts their portfolios and giving guidance around that. And so that kind of gave way to some of what I do today around speaking on the economy and markets, but uh, day-to-day still um, working directly with clients, high net worth individuals primarily. Um, I also lead a team of portfolio managers that do the same thing in Chicago. Um, we manage about $5 billion in, in assets for, for clients. So we live in interesting times right now, especially politically, and I don't want to get into that mm-hmm. per se. It's, you know, some of the decisions that will be coming in the next few months will certainly affect the 2023 economy and beyond. So let's just get right into it. What's your general outlook for 2023? So I, you know, in, in the interest of not bearing the lead on this, I think um, our current view, which, you know, certainly is always evolving, is that we are in for a mild recession of sorts, likely towards the end of this year, maybe early into next year. And I think you know, the, the way we kind of think about this is going back to probably about this time last year and into the middle and kind of the second half of last year, we were one of the voices suggesting that sort of the more rosy outcome was the higher probability outcome, the, the quote unquote soft landing, the Fed, they've got their foot on the brakes in a big way with respect to the economy. But we thought for a couple of reasons that there was a lot of time, maybe more time than typically you would have to execute on that soft landing, given the, the pretty significant tightening they've been doing. We think we got that kind of fundamentally correct and that there's been a lot more time, as evidenced by, I would say, you hear many more voices today saying, hey, a soft landing is, is a, a possibility. 
Ironically, we've kind of swung a bit in the other direction. As I mentioned, now maybe placing a 60% probability on a mild, uh, a mild recession. One of the reasons we thought, and I think, you know, one of the reasons we thought that that, you know, soft landing was possible, and while today, even though we're slightly more pessimistic, we think, you know, we're arguing for a mild recession is because the Fed's tightening unusually early in an economic cycle. It typically doesn't happen. It typically happens later cycle when consumers are more tapped out, businesses are, we're, we're not adding jobs, and then that pushes you much more easily into kind of a recessionary period. We're not, we're not there. We're adding a lot of jobs for a couple of different reasons. So um, this has kind of become our view of, of why we think you know, we're headed for a recession, but it's likely to be a mild one. Yeah. And there are a lot of conflicting data points out there. You mentioned jobs. You know, We added a significant number of jobs in the last report. I'm not sure what, what it's going to look like in the next one. Mm-hmm. Today, on my way into the office, I was listening to CNN, and they're talking about how we could be moving into a, a period of 0% national growth, which is not good for anyone, mm-hmm. right? And then you have the debt ceiling issue. right? So all these things are coming to play. Uh, from my role as an economic developer and in talking to my counterparts, a lot of us have a theory that this is going to be, uh, if there is a recession, it's going to be a full employment recession. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be consumer-led. Is that your opinion as well? Yeah, and I think you know one of the reasons we would argue for um, the milder sort of flavor of a recession, and you know whether that's low growth or somewhat of an economic contraction, um, is because of the tightness in the labor market. It's we're at historically low unemployment. We have a massive labor gap. It's gotten a little bit better, but. It is unprecedented in U.S. economic history to have as many more job openings as we do than job job seekers, and it creates this dichotomy with respect to the labor market, kind of a good news, bad news, which is, you know, it means we have room to keep adding jobs. And that's, to your point, the January jobs number, if you look throughout 2022, you know, estimates versus actual job ads on a monthly basis. You know, the estimates missed by about a million two jobs. So there's about a third of all jobs that we added in 2022. So I think it's underappreciated how this labor gap can provide a tailwind to keep adding jobs. And if people are finding jobs, that means more consumer spending and we keep moving forward. The other side of that kind of gets to our biggest concern and everyone's biggest concern is inflation and what that does for wage inflation specifically. Um, you can imagine the, with the tight labor market, with this big gap um, in the labor market, it means that employers continually have to bid up um, wages for employees. Sounds good on one hand, but we also know that um, it means that we've got this gap that keeps inflation generally more, keeps it higher um, overall in the economy. So kind of good news, bad news. Right. So th- these are unprecedented times for in terms of the labor force, too, you know, as in general, we are older as a society. Yep. That's part of what's feeding into this uh, labor force shortage is the fact that people want to retire. Right. COVID maybe encouraged people to retire, some people, at an earlier age than they might have otherwise. And that's created some additional constraint. And then we also have a lot of debate around immigration policies in this country. And so you look at a solution that could help to fill that gap you talked about. And generally in the history of our country, it's come from immigrants 
moving in and taking some of the jobs at the lower scale and then working their way up and building their American dream. So do you really believe that's, you know, one of the key driving factors here behind this, this gap? It is. I mean, to back up just a bit, even more fundamentally, demographically speaking, we're having far too few children in in the economy in this generation and really in the last generation um, relative to say the 60s when um, for you know for every man and woman in the country we had about three to four children population replacement is 2.1 just to replace a biological mother and father and then some adjustment for early mortality um, we're trending well below that 2.1 figure so even more fundamentally, we're not growing our population at a rate that is enough to support. And so we have to get creative. Historically, immigration has been a source of really good labor and labor growth. And you know, we need to grow the labor force on an ongoing basis. We need to grow the productivity of the labor force on an ongoing basis. Um, so what we're seeing now, in our view, is, is structural. It's not you know, it's not indicative of current economic conditions. It's really just been exacerbated. To your point about early retirement, um, we saw, you know, I, I think, of course, the baby boomer generation retire at a faster rate, at least at this point. That's just, you know, that, that stands uh, um, sort of obviously. But given the conditions during the pandemic, of course, we saw an acceleration in that, just like many economic themes that were underway the pandemic just ex- accelerated and exacerbated those issues. So we had an extra 2.3 million baby boomers retire early. So now we're faced with, sure, immigration reform, that's a big, sticky, messy issue that who knows if that ever gets worked out. Um, there are many other things we need to undertake. Um, the business community is typically pretty good at solving for these things, given the profit motive. Um, but uh, we need to figure out ways to expand the workforce, and immigration is certainly one of them. Finding pathways for older workers to come back into the workforce in some capacity that works for them is another big one. Yeah, just touching on that a little bit more, the labor force shortage uh, is is also being exacerbated by another factor that um, you hear sometimes, which is reshoring, Mm -hmm. manufacturers coming back, we have a lot of volatility on the international stage. Obviously, we have a war that's underway. We have concerns over what might happen in Taiwan with China and so forth. And I think some companies overseas or some companies here that have facilities overseas are seeing the handwriting on the wall. And so we're seeing semiconductor manufacturing coming back to the United States. We have the transition occurring in the automotive industry with mobility and with electric vehicles. And right now, citing battery plants. Mm -hmm. And all of this is happening at a time in which nobody has any labor, really. And so we it seems to me that we really have to find a way to solve that problem because this is not going to change. I think this is the trend that's that's been emerging for a few years and it's really accelerating. Yeah. So in Michigan, for example, we've landed at least three battery plants so far. And each plant has anywhere from twenty five hundred to four thousand jobs. Well, I don't know where you find 4,000 people in a, in, a, in a particular labor market, quite honestly. Let's talk about inflation a little bit and what you think will happen throughout the year with our inflationary numbers. Yeah. So this is the, the, the tricky one. This is when we talk about what is the likelihood of executing on a soft landing or something that somewhat resembles a soft landing. And we may even view a mild recession as 
uh, as somewhat of a soft landing given given the risks that are out there. But um, you know, this was kind of our argument initially. We thought there would be plenty of time. We knew inflation would come back a bit. Generally, all sorts of definitions for inflation, and especially in this hyper politicized environment, um, we see a lot of very specific single root causes of inflation. Of course, that's not the case. It's very complex. But generally, what we say is it's too many dollars chasing after too few goods. Um, we had a major issue driven by the pandemic, largely, of too many dollars, you know, driven by all the fiscal stimulus, not really ultra-low interest rates. That was a factor of monetary policy, but fiscal policy drove up the money supply to a level we'd never seen before, while at the same time, the pandemic had created all sorts of supply chain issues, and so that was our too few goods side of the equation. So understandably, we had high inflation. Um, we've seen inflation come in considerably from the middle of last year, where we were around 9% year-over-year inflation, which is a pretty unbelievable number. We're still 6 6.5% year-over-year now. The issue is the bulk of that growth now in inflation is coming really from two major categories. Transportation, to a certain extent, new used cars, oil prices, etc. But that problem has you know, sort of resolved itself or, or has in a big way over the past several months. The issue is housing, um, the housing component of CPI specifically. A little inside baseball, but the, the interesting thing about how that's measured is it's not really housing prices. Something like the Case-Shiller Index, which measures year-over-year changes in housing prices nationally, the housing component of CPI measures rent, which is really straightforward, and then owner's equivalent rent, which is, is I think, intended to be a proxy for home prices. But essentially what it is, is it's a survey. Tens of thousands of homeowners, they say, what do you think you could rent your, your house for? And those homeowners probably go on Zillow and they say, what, could, what would my house rent for? And then they report back. Problem with that is it ends up, of course, tracking rent prices quite closely. And so now you've double counted rents essentially in an, in a, in an economy where two thirds of, of people own their home. You've double counted rents. Rents are still rising, starting to level off, but understandably, rent prices are going to lag home prices as the real estate environment shifts and people are still locked in their 12, 18 month leases. Eventually, that rolls over and we're starting to see some of that. But as home prices have pretty much cratered uh, relative to where they were, rents are still very high. Um, this is a problem because the Fed is watching CPI, because they know we as consumers are watching CPI, and businesses know we as consumers are watching CPI. And so there is this risk that the Fed keeps the foot on the brakes, slowing the economy perhaps longer than they need to because of that sort of the semantic issue of what are they measuring when they're measuring the housing component of CPI, which is at this point more than 50% of growth in inflation is attributable to that housing component. So and, that's and it's kind lagging. of our issue. And it's at, at best case scenario, it's lagging. Worst case scenario is it's just not measuring the right, really the right data, right? right. It's just double counting rents and, and that lag will, will, that lag is at this point an absolute and um, again, just kind of measuring the wrong, the wrong data. So it's this problem with applying economic theory to what's actually driving inflation and what our impressions of inflation are as consumers. So we could probably keep going, but we're out of time. So I would like you to just give your overall best guess estimate for what this is going to look like, this economy, by the end of the year. 
because it feels like to me the economy is trying to soar and we're constraining it. And then there's all these other factors that are also constraining it. So it makes for very dynamic kind of environment. So what what is your best guess? Yeah, and I, I'm often accused of being, you know, optimistic or or glass half, you know, full. I think a lot of that is because, you know, we have a long-term view and uh, you know, recessions are uh, inevitable and you're you're sort of rewarded for being optimistic when it comes to capital markets and investing. But I would say for this year, I would I would generally agree. I think Inflation's going to be sticky, and we saw the latest number was was higher than expected, and then it created a little fear in the markets. Inflation's going to be much higher than the Fed's kind of long-term two percent target for potentially, I, I say many quarters, just because that gives me a lot of flexibility because it right. could be many, many quarters. But what that means for us is greater volatility in, in the markets, the, the path forward. I think the economy continues to chug along, we slide into potentially a mild recession, but that pent-up demand, that strength in the, in the, in the labor market, um, that is the type of scenario that keeps me uh, a little optimistic. And to that point, we're neutral risk assets today. So we're not underweight. That tells you a little bit about what our impressions are, even in the face of a, of a potential mild recession. So you heard it here first. Mild recession is coming. Everybody should get ready for that. But keep working. There's a lot of jobs out there. We're all going to get through it together. Thank you, Mike, for being on the podcast today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Uh, also, I just want to mention that Fifth Third Bank has been a, and is a valuable supporter of our organization, our programs, and our services and mission. And thank you for agreeing to be our speaker at the semi-annual. So I'm sure everybody there is looking forward to hearing your thoughts. More than happy to do it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Sure. Thank you. So I'm Dan Casey with the EDA of St. Clair County. And I hope you'll join me again for the next podcast of Our Shoreline, Your Horizon. Thanks for listening. To hear more, visit the podcast page at WGRT.com or find Our Shoreline, Your Horizon on your favorite podcast app.